Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to our Lent Sermon Series, Proclaiming the Lord's Death. This sermon is entitled, He Became Sin for Us, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the Epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 3, we'll be reading verse 19 through 26. We're starting a new liturgical season. We're heading into Lent. This is the first Sunday of Lent. That's why all the purple's out. And that means that we are also starting a new sermon series, one that focuses on the cross of Christ. The cross is obviously incredibly important in what we believe, uh, central. We put it on top of all our steeples. Uh, we carry it in every Sunday morning. It's really, really important to us. And it's a really, really complex, complicated symbol. To understand what Jesus did on the cross is no simple thing. So for the next six weeks, we'll be looking at different aspects of what it means that Jesus died for us, what happened, and the implications for our life when we think about Jesus going to the cross for us. And the series will be called Proclaiming the Lord's Death. And we start by reading from Romans chapter 3. Let's start at night. I said 19, but let's, uh, I'm going to read um, verses 10 and 11 too, just to give you a sense of the momentum. Paul is at the end of a long argument where he's saying that every human being is sinful. And it concludes with him quoting a psalm, and he says, as it is written, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one, and there's no one understands, and there's no one who seeks God. And then down to, he goes on illustrating and, and suggesting a human wickedness. And then he comes down to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which in the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We Christians, if we've grown up in the church, we're so used to talking about the cross, we're so used to the language of the cross uh, and the things we say about the cross, uh, that, that sometimes these words about the cross that we say, they just flow out of us without us even thinking. And it's not surprising. We talk about the cross in our liturgies, we talk about the cross in our sermons. We, we sing about the cross in many of our songs. And so we're used to saying things like Jesus died on the cross to, 
save us from our sins and his blood has paid the debt and set us free. We, that, that, that sort of stuff, we, we say it without even thinking. And that's good at some level. It shows that the language of the cross and the importance of the cross is sunk deep in our bones. But I think it's important once in a while to take a big step back and hear how strange this language can sound in the ears of non-Christians and people who have never grown up or never spent any time in a church. Jesus died to save you. How does that work exactly? How does the death of someone 2,000 years ago save you? Jesus shed his blood to pay a debt and make you free. How does the shedding of blood pay a debt? What exactly is going on there? Not only does this sometimes sound strange in the ears of the people that we talk to out there in the world, sometimes it even sounds offensive. Verse 25 of our passage says this. It says that the Father presents Jesus Christ, his Son, as a sacrifice atonement for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay? Very familiar language. That, that pass, that verse, verse 25, the, the image of presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement is referring to the Jewish celebration of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In Yom Kippur, which you can read about in Leviticus 16, once a year, the high priest would sacrifice a goat, collect the blood of a goat, and then would take in a bowl, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the temple, and would take that blood and would sprinkle it on the altar, sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkle it on the atonement cover of the Ark. And by that ceremony, by that sacrifice, the high priest would win atonement for the sins of the people. For another year, those people would be free from their guilt and would be able to live in the presence of a living God. But now, in Romans 3, verse 25, what Paul is saying is that instead of the high priest going into the sanctuary and presenting a goat, God the Father comes into the most holy place and presents his one and only Son. And the blood of his one and only Son is placed on the atonement cover. And it makes atonement for all God's people, not just for a year, but for ever and ever. Amen. That's the gospel. We're used to hearing it. We're used to singing about it. But now, can you hear how strange that might sound in the ears of someone out there? The Father presents his Son as a sacrifice to forgive you of your sins. What are we talking about here, people? Human sacrifice? You Christians are celebrating human sacrifice? You make songs about human sacrifice? You have a, a celebration? You, you, you have this meal which celebrates human sacrifice? That's primitive, you guys. That's messed up. Not only can people say things like that, they absolutely do. What do we mean? When we say these things that flow so easily off our lips and really in the ears of non-believers can sound profoundly strange and disturbing, that's what I want to think about with you this morning. It's important that we understand our faith. It's important for us so that we know what we're talking about when we say the words, 
but it's also important so that we can give a hope for the re- or a reason for the hope that is within us and talk to the people we run into every day. If someone at your work, if someone who lives in your neighborhood would come up to you and say those things about human sacrifice, would you know what to say to them? Would you have an answer for them? Well, let me think about that with you today. And let me start by saying that I think this talk about blood and payment is maybe not so strange as we sometimes think. If you go to Washington, D.C., one of the must-see places on your visit is, of course, the Lincoln Memorial. The Lincoln Memorial is at one end of the National Mall. It's that beautiful white building. If you stand at the steps, you can look up, and there's Honest Abe, and he's looking down the mall all the way to the Capitol building. And if you climb up the white steps and stand at his feet, you get a good look at Abe. And if you look to the right, you will see on the wall some writing. It's a part of one of Lincoln's most famous speeches, the second inaugural address. Right? It was the second time he'd been elected president, the words he spoke in 1864 when he was sworn in, while the war was still going on. And if you read the text of that speech, you will hear Lincoln saying that the bloodshed of the Civil War, which was terrible, was a payment for the blood and the scourge of slavery. That those who died and shed their blood in the Civil War were paying a price for the sin of slavery. Listen, this is the words. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war might soon pass away. Pray that the Civil War will soon end. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, As it was said 3,000 years ago, so it must still be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. Psalm 19. Now, you don't have to agree with Abe Lincoln that the bloodshed of the Civil War was payment for the sin of slavery. My point is simply that We understand the language of blood paying for sin so well that it shows up in one of our most famous speeches that we put on one of our most famous national monuments. There is something in us that absolutely understands how sacrificial blood can pay for sins. Another example. In Argentina, from 1976 to 1983, uh, the Argentine people went through a terrible time called the Dirty War a military dictatorship came into power, and in order to consolidate their power, that dictatorship started to identify and eliminate systematically the people who were opposed to them. They killed many, many people, thousands of them, but they didn't do it in a conventional way. Instead of just killing them, like leaving them in the street, shooting them so they could be found in the street on the next morning, they simply made them disappear. All of a sudden, loved ones would just vanish from the face of the earth, and families had no idea where they went. The Mothers of the Disappeared, maybe you've heard of it, it's a U2 song, but all of a sudden disappeared, thousands and thousands of people. 
And it came to be known later that a lot of these people have been taken up in planes over the Atlantic Ocean and just pushed out, gone, disappeared. It's not enough after that injustice to simply have that injustice acknowledged and everybody to recognize that it was wrong. There needs to be justice done in the form of punishment. Some people need to be brought to justice in the minds of the Argentine people. In 1999, a son of one of the victims of this dirty war said this, the last time I saw my mother was when I was seven and I will never see her again. Someone must pay for my pain. We understand the logic of that, right? Some terrible thing has been done. There needs to be a penalty. There needs to be some sort of payment to restore the balance of things. Something needs to happen to restore decency, to restore justice to that society. We understand the logic of sin that requires payment. Sin creates moral debt. It throws off the balance sheet of the universe. Sin causes deficits in other people's lives, and that deficit must somehow be paid by some sort of sacrificial price. One more, even smaller example, more domestic example. Any parents here, when you discipline your kids, when you work with your kids, you want to discipline them with consequences, right? If your child should be belligerent, if your child should, say, repeatedly break curfew or lie to you over and over again, it is not enough if the child says to you, I'm really, really sorry, I promise it won't happen again. Good parents understand, no, I mean, I'm glad you say that, son, but there also needs to be consequences. A price needs to be paid to restore the shalom and the balance in your family, the trust. Okay, fair enough, our imaginary accuser might say. I agree with you. It is true that we understand the logic of sin requiring payment. But why get Jesus involved? Why didn't God just find all the people who are guilty of their sin, those people who had done these terrible things, and round them up and make them pay for their sins? Why didn't God just round up all the bad guys and make them pay the penalty? God knows who the bad people are. Couldn't he just round them all up and, and, and make them pay? Why involve Jesus? Why take it out on him? Paul has an answer for that as well. If God started up rounding up all the bad guys, if God did this grand cosmic roundup where he brought in all the perpetrators, do you know who would be included in the bad guys and the perps? Me. And you. All of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no one righteous, not even one. When it comes to the problems of this world, we love to look at those problems and blame them on other people. When people ask us the question, what's the matter with this world? We love to identify things out there, other people, other things going on and say, that's the problem. It's them. It's those people. Those millionaires and billionaires. Those liberal snowflakes. 
those East Coast elites, those redneck Southerners, those welfare freeloaders, those greedy corporations. And it feels good to pin it on someone out there. It's self-justifying. And there are millions, or not millions, there are many pundits and people and commentators who will teach you to look at someone out there and blame the world's problems on them. But this is exactly the opposite of what Paul does. Paul says, it's me. There's a story told about G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton, the great British Catholic Christian author of the early 20th century, Chesterton was given uh, a question by the London Times back in the day. The London Times had sent out this question to many of the leading thinkers of the day. And the question was simply, what is wrong with this world? And Chesterton, uh, the London Times hoped that these thinkers would send back insightful and profound answers. And Chesterton's answer to the question sent by the Times was insightful and profound, but it was also incredibly short. Here's what Chesterton wrote. He said, Dear sir, what is wrong with this world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. It's me. I'm the problem. The line of human sinfulness is not people out there. It's not between me and people out there. The line of brokenness, the line of sinfulness between dark and light runs right down the center of every single human being. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. About 10 days ago, a story came across my new feed and maybe yours about Jean Vanier. Some of you know Jean Vanier, some of you don't. For, for, I, I love Jean Vanier. He was one of my spiritual heroes. He's a Catholic Canadian who had written extensively on what it means to be human, on the nature of God, uh, on how to treat broken people. And he had not just written about these things, he'd also started L'Arche Communities, that's that community of developmentally disabled adults, where these developmentally disabled adults would come into community with fully abled adults, and they wouldn't just be taken care of, but they would be part of the community in a new way. And these, these communities were all over the world. And Vanier would speak at Harvard, and he'd speak at all these places talking about the grace of God and if you'd asked me five years ago when he was still alive to mention a living saint, I would have pointed to him. Last week, after an independent investigation, it was found that Jean Vanier had sexually abused multiple women who were under him. They weren't the developmentally disabled adults, thank the Lord, but they were women over whom he had authority. And it wasn't just one, it wasn't just two, it was multiple. When I saw the headline, I couldn't even read the story. It took me two days before I could open it and read it. It strikes me that Jean Vanier could be the poster boy for Romans 3 verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. Scratch the surface of your personal spiritual hero, and just underneath, something will start to ooze. Stretch the surface of every single person in this room, and just underneath, something will be oozing there. 
We are beautiful creatures made in the image of God, but we are busted. The things we've done, the things we've left undone, the terrible things we think, the good things that we don't think often enough. We can't fix what's wrong with us and we don't have the money to pay the damages of what we've done. Put it all together and you have this great conflagration of, of sin and being sinned against, of sin and victimhood, and we stand before it every day and we feel absolutely overwhelmed because we can't do anything with it. It's more than we can handle. The Father and the Son stand before this mountain of our sin, and what do they do? The Son raises his hand, and he says, I'm willing. I love those people. And the Father with love in his heart, and you have to believe some pain as well, presents the son as a sacrifice. And the son climbs into the middle of all the mess, of all the chaos of the things we've done, and he stands in the middle of it and he dies. And his blood takes care of all the mess in me, and his blood takes care of all the mess out there. That's why we write songs about it. That's why we celebrate this feast week after week. Because all our hopes are on that moment. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. When you celebrate the Lord's Supper in the pew, like you guys get to do, I'm up here. There's one moment that I really, really love. And, and um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when the, when the wine comes by and you pass that immensely heavy tray you take out the little glass and, and you either put it on your lap or maybe you put it on your knee. I've noticed sometimes that the surface of the wine in the glass, it vibrates with the pumping of my own heart. You ever notice that? The surface will ripple because your body, the, 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 the beating, the pumping of your own blood will make the surface of that wine ripple. The blood of Christ rippling with your own heart. It's perfect. When I see that, I say that's perfect because all my hopes are in that cup. All my dreams, all my fears are in that cup and on his cross. And my fellow sinners, it's the same for you. So take, drink, remember and believe that Christ gave his blood for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. Lord Jesus, we come to the foot of your cross with our, with our hearts open and nothing in our hands. Lord, you know what's in us. You know the good, you know the bad, you know the messy. And you know that we cannot fix what's wrong with us. But we thank you and we praise you that you can and you did. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.